1: welcome to the new books in jewish studies podcast i am your host Ari barbalat today it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with nancy siegel she is professor of psychology and director of the twin studies center at california state university fullerton we will today be discussing her newly published book the twin children of the holocaust stolen childhood and the will to survive published in boston by Academic Studies Press 2023. Nancy, it is an honor to be in dialogue with you today.
0: Thank you, Ari, it's nice to be here.
1: Can you kindly begin by telling us about yourself? What formative events in your life inspired your scholarly journey?
0: Well, let's begin by just saying that I'm a fraternal twin, I'm a Jewish twin, and so I've been attracted to things Jewish and to things twin-like. And when I got to psychology classes as an undergraduate student, I was just fascinated with the nature-nurture questions, which Twin Studies can so wonderfully answer. I was also struck by the fact that my twin sister and I were so different growing up in appearance, but more specifically in behavior. And this fascinated me because we were raised at the same time by the same parents, had so many experiences in common, and yet turned out so differently. So my my um, questions about how we come to be who we are really forced this career, and it's been wonderful. Um, you can study twins at two levels. You can study them as a model for probing questions concerning human nature. But you can study them as a phenomenon in themselves specifically their unique developmental issues now when i was in california as a postdoctoral fellow uh, this is uh, let me backtrack for a moment i got my bachelor of arts degree at boston university got a phd degree at the university of chicago and then did a postdoc at the university of minnesota where i worked on studies of twins raised apart and it was during my first or second year there that I discovered the Mengele twins and a number of survivors of that horrific period in human history. And I learned that there was going to be a 40th anniversary reunion of those twins held at Auschwitz-Birkenau, followed by a three-day public hearing on Mengele's war crimes. And you know, Ari, I was just drawn to this. I just had to be there as a psychologist, as a twin, as a Jewish twin. And so while I was there, I took many, many photographs. And I'm not a photographer, but some of the photographs are just wonderful. And during COVID, I happened to be looking through my closet and discovered this treasure trove, this wonderful living record of human history. And Academic Studies Press was fascinated by my idea to publish this. And so the result is the Twin Children of the Holocaust. It's an annotated collection of photographs from that time, as well as some related events that followed.
1: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
0: There are a number of messages I'd like to convey to readers. Uh, The messages are that we can never forget that by publishing this compendium of photographs and reminding people of what happened, this serves as a really important warning to any future investigators who hope to do anything like this. I also want to commemorate the twins and to tell their life stories. You know, we hear about the so-called Mangala twins, but what about the people behind them? How have they coped? Have they raised families? Have they found good jobs? Have they led meaningful lives? And that is also what I wanted to convey, the humanity behind the horror.
1: Thank you for sharing. What are the primary themes in your book? What argument does your book advance?
0: Well, one of the main arguments is that these children had to grow up quickly. They were young children, rudely taken from their parents and familiar friends, and thrust into this really atypical, abnormal, horrific situation. And they had to grow up fast. You know, survival was not just a matter of luck. It was also a matter of cunning and cleverness. And these twins devised some really clever ways of surviving. You know, one twin used to go to the kitchen and steal bits of food and supplies because he was given that job to bring soup to the chil- the twin children. And but he found this other thing to do on the on the side. And so another twin learned that his sister was brought to the hospital, a place where children never were released, but he managed to get in there by faking a toothache and got his sister out. So these are the kind of clever strategies these kids did. And when you talk to them, they talk about a stolen childhood, which is the subtitle of the book. And by going back to Auschwitz and seeing the other twins, it kind of rekindled a sense of childhood. Some people may wonder why would you want to go back? Well, you want to affirm your self-identity and you also want to bring your own children to the place of their grandparents' gravesites.
1: What would you like listeners to get out of today's dialogue?
0: I want them to really appreciate the people behind these stories. And I want them to keep in mind that the story is not over that this is going to go on for a while because these twins have children and grandchildren and even some great-grandchildren. And I think this story will be told. And of course, the second third and fourth generations are affected as well. So I also hope that anybody who is a twin out there or knows a Holocaust twin will get in touch with me. That would be very, very important. And I think, Ari, you have my contact information, is that correct, on the website? Yes. Wonderful. Yes.
1: thank you. How does your book advance our understanding of the Holocaust?
0: I think my book advances understanding the Holocaust by presenting a side that is not really emphasized. You know, we emphasize a lot about experimentation, uh, about the horrors of the concentration camp situation, and about how could the Germans possibly do this. But this brings you really closer to the people involved. And I think that's very, very important. I think that once people become real then you're more deeply affected and more likely to do something to prevent this from ever happening again.
1: Who is Peter Samoji? Can you tell us about Uh, him?
0: Yeah, Peter Samoji was actually one of the older twins. He was 12 years old at the time. And I actually met him prior to going to Auschwitz. I met some of the twins in December before the January and February that I was there. He had a fraternal twin brother, Tomas. Peter now lives in Delaware. His brother lives in Canada. Peter uh, was amazing. I met him at the home of another twin, and he suddenly pulled out a piece of paper and drew a map of Auschwitz, and his wife just sat there in disbelief because he never discussed this period of his life with her or with his children. He and his brother were lucky enough to be liberated by an older twin, Zvi Spiegel, who at the time of the death march out of the camp in January of 1945... Walked the twin children home to many of their hometowns and in the synagogue in his hometown of page hungary which i visited there's a wonderful picture i have of the synagogue there uh, in that rabbi's studio is a picture of peter and thomas when they returned from auschwitz
1: how are the adulthoods of the survivors featured in this book impacted by their ordeals as victims of joseph mengele's experiments To the extent of your knowledge, what kinds of medical and psychological consequences persisted?
0: So we'll talk about the medical ones first because we know less about them. The the problem is that many of the twins don't really know what kinds of experiments were performed on them, what kinds of substances were injected into their bodies. And so now that many of them are older, it's the time that people develop medical conditions anyway. So whether these conditions are part of the normal aging process, or whether they are tied to something that happened at Auschwitz is unknown. I will say that one of the twins I knew who's since passed away, but she was a upper middle-class woman in an upper middle-class Chicago suburb and developed tuberculosis. And her doctor was stunned because women in that stage of life, in that particular status do not develop this disease. Now, in terms of psychological consequences, I will say that most of these twins are doing okay, uh, but the main thing for them is family, establishing family. Having a husband, having a wife, having children and grandchildren is the most important thing that they could do, and they also are very much interested in education. Many of them have lectured widely at Holocaust uh, services or at schools or other community centers to get their stories out. And again, I think that's so important because these are real people. And I think they make the greatest impression rather than simply um, reading about it in a book. And that's why, Ari, that I wanted lots of pictures because the pictures combined with the text tell a story. I wanted people to look at the pictures more than the text. The text just provides a little bit of context, just enough.
1: Thank you for sharing that. Who are Anetta and Stephanie or Stefa Heller? Why are they noteworthy?
0: Anetta and Stefa are twins that I met at the 3-day public hearing on Mango's war crimes held at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem immediately after the anniversary reunion in Auschwitz. Anetta is still alive, Stefa passed away 3 or 4 years ago. The twins actually uh, moved to Australia. They that's where they ended up most recently. And I will say that they were supposed to be the subjects of a horrific experiment where Mengele was going to see if they could be impregnated by identical men. Now, the thing is that if you really wanted to study the twinning process, you would look at the parents, not the twins. So it was a completely misguided experiment done at the whims of this horrific doctor. Annetta is a wonderful woman. She holds the Guinness Book World of Records as the oldest Mengele twin survivor. I'm proud to say that I got her in for that and she is now 99 she'll be celebrating her 100th birthday in February and I spent time with them in the early 200s when I was writing my book Individual by 2 they have a I have a whole chapter on them on their childhood on their growing up years their experience in Theresienstadt and, and Auschwitz and then I saw them again some years later when I gave a lecture in Melbourne where they live but most recently, just a month ago, I traveled to Melbourne for two days to attend an amazing event that starred Anetta Abel. Anetta wrote a book called The Mosaic of My Life, which is absolutely spectacular. I'm almost through reading it. And I was invited to the book launch. Now, nobody really expected that I would come. But you know, Ari, sometimes in life, there are opportunities that you know you must take. And I knew that I was going to go to this. And I was fortunate enough that they asked me to speak at the event. I was very honored to do so. I was just one of three speakers. And it was a wonderful, wonderful event attended by probably a hundred people in a beautiful beautiful Jewish center. The rabbi spoke, another one of Annette's friends spoke. It was, and I got to meet her family and her grandchildren. It was an amazing event. And one I am so happy that I was present for.
1: Wow, that sounds incredible.
0: You can read all about it in the Australian Jewish news. And I'll send you that article uh, and you can maybe post it on the website and people can take a look.
1: Thank you. Would be honored. What is the handles organization spelled C-A-N-D-L E S um as an as an acronym, which stands for Children of Auschwitz's Auschwitz does not see deadly. Laboratory Experiments Survivors Organization.
0: You founded it.
1: Can you describe its work? Can you tell us about its origins and evolution? Is it active today?
0: Sure. Candles was founded by Eva Kaur, one of the surviving identical twins. She's no longer alive, but she's the one who spearheaded this movement. And there was an active Candles organization founded in about 1984, 83 in the U.S., in Terre Haute, where she lived and also her twin sister, Miriam Zeiger, who lived in Israel. So there were two main centers for candles. Candles uh, organized two or three trips to Auschwitz. I attended the second one. I think that was the biggest one. And it also organized an inquest in November of 1985 in Terre Haute to review the forensic evidence as to whether or not Mengele truly died by drowning. Now. There is a Candles Museum that Eva established in Terre Haute, Indiana, which is very, very active. It holds some wonderful educational programs. And in fact, I'm delighted to say that I'm going to be there September 23rd talking about my book and meeting the staff of that museum. I'm very, very excited about that. September 23rd at 4 o'clock, it's a free event, and they do have a number of very, very interesting educational programs. I should also say that the museum was desecrated once uh, by people, and yet Eva rebuilt it, which I think is certainly to her credit.
1: That's amazing. Thank you for providing that. Who is Renee Slotkin? Can you elaborate?
0: Renee Slotkin was a fraternal twin with a sister, Irene, or actually her original name was Renata. They were born in Czechoslovakia. And they came to Auschwitz with their mother and were immediately separated from her and from each other. And that was when they were five or six. And then they were liberated in 45, but they were taken by different families. Uh, Renata, the little girl, was taken in first by a Catholic Polish family and later sent to a Paris orphanage for Jewish children, ultimately brought to the United States through a program called Rescue Children and adopted by a family in Long Island. So her name became Irene Slotkin. And she told her new adoptive parents that she had a twin brother, Rene, who had been, and she didn't know this, but he had been taken in by a Czech doctor. The doctor had to leave to flee to Palestine because he was wanted for some political activities. So the little boy was raised by his sister. Well, when Irene was brought to New York City, there were photographs taken of her by Life magazine, 1947, and they were seen by the doctor who had adopted or taken Renee in and he got word back to his sister. And the amazing thing Ari, was that they were reunited when they were 12 and a half years old. And as Irene explained it to me, unfortunately, both of the twins are no longer with us. But as Irene explained it to me, you know, they hadn't seen each other from age five till 12, but they recognized each other. And they both just really quietly embraced that was the way they do things. Can you
1: tell us about the event? organized by Eva Kaur at Indiana State University, known as the Candles Inquest, the truth about Mengele. Who participated? What transpired?
0: Yeah, well, the inquest was organized because in June of that year, in June of 1985, it was released that Mengele had died by drowning in 1979. He'd been living in a small town in the southern tip of Brazil. Some of the twins did not believe it. They felt it was just a hoax. They figured that Mangala would have access to all kinds of bodies to substitute for his own. And so um, this brought together um, a number of forensic medical specialists, some of the twins, some government officials to review the evidence. Now, there was really no conclusion based at this time, although all the evidence seemed to point to Mengele. I certainly believe that was Mangala. I felt that the evidence was persuasive. The only thing I objected to was that the people doing the analysis knew that they were looking for someone like Mangala, so they knew the height, they knew the weight, they knew certain characteristics about him. So it wasn't conducted blindly, which would have been a better methodology scientifically. But nevertheless, it's been there's been quite a bit of evidence to show that yes. Uh, Mengele did, in fact, die by drowning in Brazil.
1: Who is Ephraim Reichenberg? Can you tell us about his story?
0: Efraim Reichenberg was considered to be a twin at Auschwitz, although he wasn't. When he and his brother, Laszlo, got off the train, you know, they looked a lot alike, like brothers sometimes do. And the Nazis thought they were twins, and they said they weren't, but they were brought to the twins' barracks anyway. And the officers wanted to know why one Twin had a beautiful singing voice that was Laszlo and why Ephraim did not. So they injected all kinds of substances into his throat, which caused difficulty breathing and swelling. And when he finally was liberated and moved to Israel, he had to have his vocal cords removed. And so he's no longer able to speak normally. He has to hold an electronic device to his neck. And ironically, he's it's a German made device. Now, he came to Auschwitz. I met him. He's a wonderfully strong man. I thought it took a lot of courage for him to come in that situation. But I'll mention that there was another twin who showed up who was on dialysis. And I think that the drive to be there and to meet the other twins and to, you know, to learn about yourself was very powerful. And so it overwhelmed any of the contraindications.
1: Who is Manasha Lorenzi? Can you elaborate?
0: Manash Lorenzi was another twin survivor. I don't know if he's alive today, but he was at the time and and came with his wife. Manash Lorenzi was one of the young twins I mentioned earlier, who was given the job of bringing soup back for the children. And while he was in the kitchen, he was able to secure bits of supplies and more food for himself and his friends. But he thought that if he could get his sister there, that would be even better. So they put her into the big soup can. But then they had to get her out to put the soup in there. So they gave her the job of holding her hand on the lid on the way back in case anybody should ask. And that's a great example, Ari, of what I mean by the cleverness and cunning the children had to use to survive, the growing up fast, the stolen
1: childhood. Who is Mark Berkowitz? Can you elaborate?
0: Mark Berkowitz was also one of the twin survivors. He had a twin sister. I believe her name was Leora. She did not attend. Mark brought his son Andy. To, to see the grave sites of his parents, so to speak. And I have a, a wonderful picture of Mark standing at the twins' barracks. He was 12 years old at the time, but I have him now 40 years later, so he was 52, standing in front of himself, confronting the past. And in fact, the cover of the book, which people should really understand, shows, again, the, the backdrop is a still from the film that was made by the Soviet liberators at the time of liberation and in the front of the still are two sets are one set of identical 9-year-old twins Eva and Miriam remember Eva and Miriam headed the candles organizations in the US and Israel respectively and i was able to position them at age 49 in front of their childhood selves so it's kind of an amazing time lapse photography and i think that the power of that picture is the idea that these twins are strong and resilient able to confront their past, able to live productive lives, have families, have good jobs, and be able to go back and just be able to show that the world that they survived and that they are strong and resilient.
1: Can you describe the trip to Poland that the survivors took together to see the various concentration camps, particularly Auschwitz? Can you... Describe this experience for them.
0: Yeah, so I went uh, with the twins. We left New York City and then we flew to Paris because there were no direct flights from New York to uh, Warsaw. And the interesting thing is that you never knew whether you would have an Air France or Airlot flight for some security reasons. Poland was communist in those years. And we had an Air France flight. I know, I'm sorry. We had an Air lot flight going there and an Air France flight coming back as we headed to Israel at the end of the event. Uh, We spent uh, just maybe one day touring Warsaw before heading down to Krakow, which is the nearest big city to Auschwitz. And we saw uh, in the shops there was very little there. Uh, But I did buy myself a wonderful fur hat. And somebody found me some apples, not very ripe, but still edible. And then we headed down to Krakow where we met some other twins and we met some people from the TV stations who would be covering the event. And the great thing for me was seeing these people connect. You know, it was an interesting kind of reunion because many of these twins thought that they were the only ones to survive. They had no idea that there were others out there. And some of them had tried to be parts of other Holocaust support groups and found that they were very unsatisfactory because their experience was so unique. They were children and they were twins. And so to meet other twins and to discuss their experiences, their lives without explanation, but with full understanding, was for them a real pleasure and a real luxury. What
1: was the trip's itinerary? Can you tell us about the various sites that were visited?
0: Yeah. So as I said, we didn't really do a great deal in Warsaw prior to the trip. When we got to Krakow, we stayed in a hotel there and we were there for four days. And every day a bus would come to take us to the camps. And we would tour various sites on the camps, you know, the the crematoria, the, the wall of executions, uh, things like that. We spent more time in, in uh, Warsaw on the way back, but I want to tell a story first prior to that. So two things that I did apart from the twins. With us on the trip were two Los Angeles Times reporters, Bob Dallas and Ron Sobel. And they were there to cover this event, but also to document the story of a couple who had left Poland, moved to Chicago, and then moved back to Poland. And so we spent some time in their small town looking at that, it's very close to the Czech border. And then we had dinner at an amazing restaurant in in Krakow afterwards. I remember it was a very fancy place and the dinners were about $3 a piece. And I think it was either Ron or Bob very grandly offered to pay the bill. (laughs) So that was kind of funny. Um, The other day that I walked away from the twins a bit was because I wanted to see the museum. There was a museum at Auschwitz where various survivors and some non-survivors contributed pieces of art that depict the human experience in the camps. And I took a number of photographs of those which are in the book. As I was wandering out of there, I happened to see, of all people, Elie Wiesel escorted by Peter Jennings. And this was Ellie Wiesel's first visit back to Auschwitz after the liberation. And I have the most marvelous picture of him in the book. It's absolutely extraordinary with his hair blowing back, uh, it was amazing, and I often wondered if he knew about this event, because I had met Peter Jennings' niece on a vacation, and I had told her that I was going to this, so it's possible she told her uncle about this. At any rate, the story continues, sorry. So I took this photograph of Ellie Wiesel, and I knew that he was a professor at Boston University, but somehow I was compelled to give him the photograph personally, so I waited until maybe I'd be in the same city with him. And it turned out that he was coming to Minneapolis to give a lecture about the Holocaust. And so I was able to give the photograph to an usher who then gave it to him or promised to. But you know, you're never sure about these things. And when I left the event to get to the bus stop and my way home, there was Elie Wiesel walking all by himself to his hotel. I asked him if he had the photograph, he said yes. And he remembered me. Then fast forward to about 2010, and I was lucky enough to be invited to the White House. Uh, I have a colleague who was on Obama's uh, committee for arts and sciences, and they were having a um, award ceremony. So it was all very exciting, and I had no idea that Ellie Wiesel was going to be one of the honorees. And this time, I was able to ask him if he remembered me in the photograph, and he said he did. So that's my Ellie Wiesel story, divided into three parts. Now, wow. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Uh, Now, you wanted to know more about the itinerary. So we left uh, Krakow for Warsaw by bus. And then we spent a day in Warsaw visiting various memorials and um, statues and things of that sort, which are all documented in the book. We flew then from Warsaw to Paris on Air France. And in the aisle, I remember a reunion between two twin Holocaust survivors. It was just amazing. Just amazing. And then we got to Jerusalem, we stayed at the Holy Land Hotel. There were some events the night before a musical performance by various twins. And for the next three days, we heard testimony from 30, mostly twin, but some non twin survivors of Auschwitz as to what happened to them while I were in the camps to really get this all down while memories were fairly fresh.
1: Can you say more about the restaurant, Neck? Yeah. What was the food sure like? How, yeah. What I'm was the sure. ambiance like? How I'm not
0: sure how you pronounce it, but that sounds close enough to me. So it it was a, um, a wonderful little restaurant in Krakow. It was very, very old. And in fact, Ron and Bob, the two LA Times reporters, wrote up a little story about that And as i said i just remember that this wonderful sumptuous meal we had was only three dollars a person and i just couldn't get over it so it was you know these are the unplanned experiences you have when you travel and in many ways they are the most memorable
1: what kinds of relationships were formed among survivors during this trip to poland
0: yep that's a great question they really solidified the bonds between them and the twins were very tightly linked in their common quest to find Mengele and bring him to justice. After all, this was January, February 85, and news of Mengele's death was not released until June. So the twins were very tightly bound in this common goal. Unfortunately, when Mengele's death was announced, then the bonds began to unravel because the common purpose was no longer there. And I think there was one more trip back to Auschwitz that Eva organized, but I don't think it was that well attended. I don't know for sure. Probably got a lot less attention than the one that I attended. And now there are some friendships that are maintained. I know that June Slotkin, who was married to Renee Slotkin, who we mentioned earlier, she maintained some ties with some of the twins. I maintain ties with her and some of the Slotkin children and with the Samajis, and also with Aneta and Stefa. And now that my book has come out, I'm trying to get in touch with some of the ones in Israel. Uh, who I know are there, but I have no way of contacting them at this moment. So if anybody's out there and hears about them, I'd love to be put in touch. Uh, Again, I'm just going to say that my email address is nsegal, or lowercase, at Fullerton, F-U-L-L-E-R-T-O-N dot E-D-U, if anyone knows any of these Mangala Twin survivors.
1: Thank you. What kinds of emotional responses were triggered by the experience of visiting Auschwitz-Birkenau?
0: on the trip. You're talking about my experience.
1: Uh, Among the twins who had visited during the trip, how did different survivors feel returning to Auschwitz-Birkenau?
0: There was a mix, Ari. I think that the main thing was seeing the other twins, and that was a good thing. And the, the ability to be able to discuss their life events during dinner, during cocktail hours, after we left Auschwitz, I think that was also great for them. But of course it brought back a lot of sadness because family members were no longer there. It brought back certain memories with startling clarity that I think some of the twins didn't realize would recover. Um, So it was a mix of emotions, but, but the main point is that I think all the twins were glad that they went. I didn't say glad i said say gratified it was something they felt compelled to do and i understand that completely
1: what kinds of emotional responses did you experience in auschwitz
0: it it was a mix of emotions i felt very tightly bound to these twins because i care about twins a lot it's my life's work and i also knew that as jewish twin in another time another place that could have been my twin sister and me on those railroad ramps so I felt a personal connection as well. I was also astonished that I was the only psychologist present. There was one Israeli psychiatrist who was there, but given the publicity that this event had in advance, I was surprised there weren't others in my capacity, but that's okay. I got closer connections to all of them. And for me, it was a conference or a gathering like none other I had attended. I was used to academic types of conferences where You know, you you present papers, you listen to papers, you discuss things with colleagues. But this was not only informational, it was also emotional because so many lives were destroyed and affected in such negative ways.
1: Can you tell us about Sam and Irene Hisme?
0: Sam and Irene Hisme are a couple, uh, a married couple. Irene is no longer with us. She was the twin brother of Renee Slotkin when her name was Renata. And she raised two beautiful daughters. And she and Renee put together a film called Renee and I, a wonderful documentary, which you can watch online, uh, depicting their experience. And there's some information about them. Uh, Actually, right now at the Reagan Library, There's here in Simi Valley, California, there's a wonderful exhibit on Auschwitz. Many of the artifacts and things are there. I I think it's still around. Uh, At any rate, she um, passed away a number of years ago She developed multiple sclerosis as an older woman, which is very unusual. Uh, So this could have been something connected to treatment she had at Auschwitz. Irene was also one of the most talented calligraphers. And if you look through the book, you'll see that there are certain plaques and things that she designed. And where she got this talent from is unknown because she doesn't really know family members. So it might have been something that she acquired genetically. Uh, but she's just an artist par excellence and i do miss her i remember i was very close with her for a while and then you know life goes on and you lose touch with people and when her movie showed here in orange county where i live i knew she'd be a speaker there so i went and i made sure that i was the last person to congratulate her because i wanted to speak with her and we had just a wonderful warm reunion and i saw her several times after that and um, I do miss her. She was a, a wonderful woman. Interestingly, she married Sam Hizmi, who was a twin, not a Holocaust twin, but he had a twin sister. And uh, uh, his uh, Irene's twin brother, Renee also married an identical twin, June Slotkin. So it was all twins in that family. Who are
1: Hedva and Leah Stern? Can you tell us about their experiences?
0: Yeah, Hedva and Leah Stern were a set of identical twins who were in Auschwitz. And I have a picture of them. They were considered to be the most identical twins, and they still are, at least the photograph I took of them. They went on to Israel afterwards to uh, develop and to live on a moshav, a collective living situation. And I, I know that they both raised families. I can't tell you any more about them than that.
1: Can you tell us about Svi Spiegel and his sister?
0: These people yeah. had a, a twin sister, Magda. Now. They were 29 years old when they came to Auschwitz, and they were separated. Uh, I'll tell you about Magna first, because I know this about her. Uh, Magna was put into a barracks with seven dwarfed brothers and sisters of a family of 10, but the seven of them were dwarfed. And her little boy was taken from her, so she was very emotionally distraught upon entrance to the camp. Zvi Spiegel was put in charge of the young twin boys, which meant he had to have them ready for experiments. Upon request, but he also managed to teach them a little geography and history, and he made sure they all knew each other's names. And he's the one who escorted the twin boys out of the camps into their hometowns at the liberation. He kept a handwritten list of all the boys who he had walked out of that place, and it's on display at Ad Vashem. I have a picture of that in the book as well. And during the testimony, one of the panelists asked if any of the twin boys were present. And there were seven or eight there, I think eight. And he asked them to all stand up and the applause was simply deafening. I mean, it was just absolutely amazing to see these twin boys who had survived and that done that walk with these Beagle and come back to you know, confront their past.
1: Who is Vera Kriegel? Can you Vera? tell us about her story?
0: Yeah. yeah. Vera Kriegel was also a fraternal twin. She had a twin sister, Olga. And I believe she's still alive because I was searching her name on Google and she had authored an article in 2021, pretty recently. And she and her sister and her mother were actually kept together because Mengel had an interest in the genetics of eye color. And he was fascinated by the fact that the mother had different eye colors than the twins, which is nothing very unusual, but again, it was whimsical research done for no particular purpose. And Vera described the fact that in one of Mengel's laboratories, on the wall, she saw eyes pinned up like butterflies with pins. And apparently what Mengele would do is he would take these human specimens and ship them marked special war materials to his collaborator, von Verschur, at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin for analysis. Who are
1: Jacob and Elias Malek? Can you tell us about them?
0: Yeah, they were identical twin boys, very young at the time, only three, and I don't know a great deal about them. They had older twin siblings uh, who were, I mentioned a little bit more in the book, a male and a female pair. And I remember that at the at the Yad Vashem hearing, and I have this in the book, there was a man with a banner, kind of wearing a banner, like an apron, looking for twins with a name very similar to the ones you just mentioned now whether they were the same pair or not i don't know those twins did not attend the meeting but at any rate uh people are still looking for people i remember there was a man peter greenfield who had a twin sister martha and he came there specifically looking for her turned out she had passed away and he was so disappointed that that i think is the toughest part you know when you hope so much to reconnect and unfortunately you don't
1: Can you tell us about Arno Motulski? Why is he significant?
0: Arno Motulski was one of the seven distinguished panelists at the Yad hearing. Passed away a few years ago, a brilliant medical geneticist. And I conferred with him on several occasions about the genetic underpinning of the dwarfism in that family from, I believe it was Romania, the ones who actually sang and danced as a troupe in their hometown, but were forced to dance naked for the pleasure of the Nazi officers, and also had to do so um, after having their teeth and their feces examined. Uh, But Arna Matulski was there to comment on the medical experimentation. And he and his colleagues on the panel determined that there really was none. There was no purpose, really, these experiments, and that really nobody should ever take them seriously.
1: What does your book teach us about memory?
0: Interesting. You know, memory is very fallible, has been shown by a great deal of psychological studies. People remember things differently. People distort things and things get changed in the retelling. But I will just talk briefly about memory, because in that evening I spent at the twins home prior to the trip, I remember this was the home of Renee and Irene Slotkin. Peter Samadji was there. And. Irene claimed to not really remember a great deal, but in the middle of our conversation, she shouted out that Mengele was wearing green boots. And I don't know if he did or not, but on the other hand, I did speak to a, a therapist who worked with children of trauma who claimed that children can recover memories if they're in very warm supportive surroundings, which that was. So it's quite possible that things could be restored and fairly faithfully. I know that when we were at Auschwitz, the first day, Eva really encouraged twins to walk around and try to look at things and try to remember because these are still, at the time, they were among the youngest of the survivors and it was important to get their story down while their memories were still fairly reliable.
1: Who is Olga Grossman? Can you describe her?
0: Olga Grossman was a twin sister of of Vera Kriegel. I don't know if she's still alive or not. She had a more difficult time than Vera. My understanding is that Olga suffered tremendously at normal family events, such as when your children grow up and go to school or go to the army. She suffered tremendously when family was separated, which I think is completely understandable. It probably brought back a lot of memories when she and her family members were separated, although she stayed with her mother for a while. And after liberation, they went to England together. Uh, but that was an unusual case, but certainly there were other relatives from whom she was separated. Can you tell us about Zahava Friedman? Why is she important? She was another twin who was at the camps and I don't know a great deal about her story. You know, remember Ari that I was, remember Ari that I was taking pictures here and there and everywhere and I couldn't get everybody's full story, but I do have a little bit about her in there. And you know, there is a, a journal of Holocaust studies that I reference and I believe that she or her sister provided some testimony. So, if you want the detailed stories of their experimentation, I would suggest that you look at that.
1: Can you tell us about the children of the Ovici
0: family? Oh, the Ovici family. Yes, the Ovici family are the um, the children of the family who had the dwarf children, the seven dwarf children, the Ovici family. And uh, as I said, they were the ones in a, a troop called the Lily Poops troop that used to play back in eastern europe uh they've written a book now there were no twins among them although i remember that newsweek once said these two were twins and i had to write in a corrective letter saying no they were just sisters but they were in fact sisters and i remember at the hearing one of them brought a son who was of normal human stature and so when i asked dr arnold matelski about this he wasn't sure if they were if the father was of normal stature and just short. But one of the sisters claimed there was a genetic anomaly there. So it's it's hard for us to know.
1: How does your book advance our understanding of trauma?
0: I think it advances our understanding of trauma because it shows you that twin children who at least have one another for support under these horrific circumstances can emerge. I won't say unscathed or unaffected, but can emerge fairly whole and begin to develop a new life not to say that they didn't suffer tremendously because they did but having their twin was one of the most important things that they could have and they had to be as mindful for their twin brother or sister as for themselves because if one should die mangle would automatically kill the other and get pair of the healthy and diseased organs um, so i know that that was having a twin i mean if you look at Annette Abel's book, I mentioned her earlier, the one living in Australia who wrote The Mosaic of My Life. You can just see how important her twin sister was to her all of those years, beginning in childhood, in Stott, in Auschwitz, in later life. Who is
1: Jersey poter Can you say more about yeah.
0: him? Yeah, I, he was one of the artists who constructed a piece of artwork that shows in the museum. And I was lucky enough, to be able to tie all the artists to particular pieces of artwork through the help of the Polish staff at the Auschwitz uh, concentration camp. They were very, very willing to help me in that respect. And so I was then able to get the life histories of, I think it was four different artists that I discuss.
1: Can you tell us about Ava Kor and her role in the events that you chronicle?
0: Yeah. Well, Eva Kor, of course, was at the center. She was a driving force of candles and of all the events that, that transpired since then. The Yad Vashem hearing, the inquest and all of that. I believe she wrote a book about her experiences with somebody. Um, I'm almost but it was a bit of a book for young children. And she was a public speaker, you know, in many ways, uh, I know that she kind of forgave the Nazis, not something I think I would have done, but that was her decision. And I think that some of the twins didn't go along with that. In fact, I know some of them didn't. Um, But at any rate, she did some very important things. And I think she needs to be credited for this museum.
1: Can you tell us about Rachel Simpson? Why is she noteworthy?
0: Rachel Simpson was also a twin in the Holocaust. Um, She was one of the ones whose picture I got but never really had a chance to talk to her in any great detail.
1: Can you tell us about the opposite sex twins, Hova Brill and Moshe David of Israel?
0: Yeah. So I don't know a great deal about Hova, but I know that Moshe was in a situation where he had to show that he was tall enough and he put stones into his shoes to try to increase his height and try to survive. I don't know if that accomplished it from what I understand from his testimony Somehow he was spared. You know, a lot of times decisions were made and no one really knows how they came to be. But he did testify at Yad Vashem. And again, if people want more details, they should go to that Holocaust Studies Journal, which I reference in the book.
1: Can you tell us about Bronislav Kromi? Why is he noteworthy?
0: He also was an artist who contributed some work to Yad Vashem. And again, I have his life history in the book, which people should absolutely consult.
1: In your perspective, what does the future hold for our remembrance of Joseph Mengele's medical atrocities as living survivors die out? What are your feelings about the next generation of remembrance?
0: Well, I think that it's up to Holocaust scholars, educators, and second generation and third generation to keep that memory alive. And I think they will. universities hold yearly holocaust symposia which i think are very very important and i've gone to several of them online and a book came out not long ago called mangle unmasking the angel of death and so there is a fascination with this because we wonder how can how can this come to be how can a person do this but it's also important to try to understand how this came to be so that we can prevent it from ever happening again. Joseph Mangala is almost a name that's gotten into the popular conscience, consciousness. You know, people think of evil doctors, they mention Mengele. Uh, I don't think that's enough to keep him alive. I think that we have to know the story that he, uh, all, the story of his life and what his connection to Auschwitz and the twins really was.
1: Can you tell us about the relationship between this book and your subsequent book?
0: Well, my subsequent book is also about twins, uh, but it, it's a different kind of case. I guess if I could think of a common thread, and let me just say that the title of my next book, which came out just two weeks ago, is Gay Fathers, Twin Sons, the citizenship case that captured the world. And if I can think of any parallels, it's about people who find themselves suddenly in extraordinary circumstances, and are up to the challenge and do not let people beat them down, just like the Holocaust twins. And now let me just turn to Gay Fathers, twin Sons, The Citizenship Case That Captured the World. That book is about a very high-profile Jewish gay couple who married in Canada in 2010, having met at Tel Aviv University, one American, one Israeli citizen. And they decided to have children through egg donation and surrogacy, and they gave birth to beautiful twin boys in 2016 named Aiden and Ethan. And it turned out that both men had contributed sperm to fertilize the eggs, and that the top two embryos one was fathered by, or one was fertilized by the American father, and one was fertilized by the Israeli father. The trouble began when the boys were four months old in January of 2017 when they decided to relocate to the United States and went to obtain passports for their two twins. And the officer at the Toronto consulate, it was the U.S. consulate in Toronto, I should say, gave them a series of very rude and intrusive questions that never would have been asked of a heterosexual couple, such as whose children are they? Where do they come from? Who's the father? Information that was intimate and private, and was never supposed to be revealed to anybody. The only people who knew the identity of the children were themselves, their attorney, and the surrogate. And so they were forced to reveal this information, and the upshot was that only one child got a U.S. passport and the other got a tourist visa, which threatened to tear apart this beautiful, loving family. They came to Los Angeles for a while, and their case was eventually taken on by Immigration Equality in New York City, which works pro bono on behalf of gay couples and uh, people with uh, HIV-infected couples who have citizenship issues. And they work pro bono in conjunction with a law firm, in this case, Sullivan and Cromwell, based in LA. And after three or four years of litigation, appeals, uh, fear that your child would be taken from you, the case finally settled in favor of the family. And so both boys are full US citizens. And as I say, it's it's ordinary people in extraordinary situations. They could have had an easy way out, maybe trying to get a green card for the little boy, but you know, it wouldn't have been the same and the boys would have been treated differently. These are twins born four minutes apart. To give one US citizenship and not the other is preposterous. And it was a real misapplication of the law because this couple was treated as though they were unmarried when in fact, they were married at the time of the birth. So at any rate, uh, I think this stands as a fantastic example of how you can take on a system and you can win, and you can pave the way and make life a lot easier for couples with similar situations who will come after you.
1: What does your interest in this subject matter reveal about you?
0: You're talking about my recent book. (laughs) I'm very interested in timely issues, Ari. And when I first learned about this case, I read about it in the Los Angeles Times in early 2018. It had so many timely themes. It had family. It had twinship. It had egg donation, surrogacy. It had citizenship issues, family. I mean, so many, many things. And I just felt so compelled to delve into this. I think it was the twinship that drew me the strongest because after all, I'm a twin researcher. And because I felt that in the litigation that I could at least see from the articles, the twinship angle, the idea of twins being separated was not given as much play as it deserved. Since the book was being written and there was another year left for production, of course, I had to update the last chapter or so because of the uh, rescinding of Roe v. Wade and what that meant for gay couples. Would marriages be annulled? Would uh, children be taken from families? I mean, Clarence Thomas, if you remember, raised a whole set of issues and implications from this overturning of Roe v. Wade. And suddenly, same-sex couples were afraid, as I think they deserve to be. So, fortunately, um, the Biden administration signed the Respect for Marriage Act, which guarantees certain rights and privileges for gay partners, not everything, but it certainly was an important step. And I hope it is something that will continue. And I, my hat is off to immigration equality, Sullivan and Cromwell, and particularly the family of um, the couple, Andrew Banks, Andrew DeVos Banks, and Ela DeVos Banks and their children. And I should say that the timing of the case was also important because there were three other cases litigated at roughly the same time by immigration equality. They did not involve twins, but they involved mixed uh, ethnic couples having children transnationally and the citizenship problems that they faced as well.
1: Thank you for sharing and thank you for providing such detail. What do you see as some of the new trends in twin studies occurring presently in the world of academic research? Is there anything that you feel excited about or optimistic about?
0: Well, there's always new trends and much to feel optimistic about. There are many new topics I hope to to pursue. I'm very interested in twin relationships from many, many different angles. And the one that I'm very interested in right now, if you can imagine that identical twins marry and have children, and the children are not just legal cousins, but they are Full I have siblings because they share a genetically identical parent. And I've been able to show that these twin aunts and uncles are more invested in their nieces and nephews who are essentially their children genetically than our fraternal twin aunts and uncles. I'd like to approach that now from the point of view of the children. How do they feel about their parent versus their aunt or uncle? I've also been doing a study on what the so-called biracial twins, something I've just started this year. And these are children, mostly fraternal twins, but some identicals, born to parents of mixed race. And so sometimes these twins end up looking very different as if they're not even related, as if they belong to different populations. So I'm interested in tracking their life experiences and the parenting challenges that come with them. And I'm hoping to write a new book Uh, in the future. I won't disclose the, the title or the topic, but stay tuned. And I'm hoping also to develop a documentary film uh, with uh, an Emmy award-winning producer uh, about gay fathers, twin sons. I think it's a natural, and I'm just hoping that we can secure funding for this very, very important project that really needs to be told. Now, another new trend in twin research is that while we focused on behavior in the past, we are starting to move towards analysis at the molecular genetic levels. Uh, looking at the genetic underpinnings of certain behaviors. Many of my colleagues are doing that. I'm sticking to the behavior. I'm studying many more different types of behaviors, particularly twin relationships, because that's what I find the most fascinating.
1: How can students and scholars in other fields of the humanities and social sciences benefit and grow from engagement with the field of twin studies?
0: They can grow in many ways. In fact, twin research, the whole methodology and design is infiltrating many fields, not just psychology and medicine, but sociology, economics, where you're looking at whether different jobs get you different earnings, as in similar for identicals and fraternals, job satisfaction, uh, religiosity, and political science. All of these things that were assumed to be almost virtually environmentally influenced are starting to show genetic components of people's attitudes towards social issues. So twin research is informing our understanding of human behavior in so many, many different ways, and people who never thought about conducting twin studies are starting to gravitate towards them.
1: Thank you for your contributions to the field of twin studies, and thank you for all the wisdom that you've shared with us in our dialogue today. I can hardly thank you enough for the erudition and eloquence that you offer to us and to our listeners throughout the course of our conversation.
0: Thank you very much, Ari. Appreciate it.
1: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am signing off as Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Today, I've been in dialogue with Nancy Siegel. She is professor of psychology and director of the Twin Studies Center at California State University, Fullerton. We have been discussing her newly published book, The Twin Children of the Holocaust*. Stolen, Childhood, and the Will to Survive, published in Boston by Academic Studies Press 2023. Thank you.